And would you join me in prayer? Indeed, Lord, we would have you speak to us now. We would have you speak until your church is filled. We would have you speak, O oh Lord, that we might see your glory. We do live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Your word is manna to us, it is meat to us, it is life to us. Feed us, Lord, we pray, by your word. And let us see Jesus. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, if you're visiting with us this morning and uh, you need a Bible, we have some brothers in the back who would be happy to supply you with a Bible uh, so that you can follow along with us in the Word of God. Uh, the main thing we give our attention to when we gather as a church is the Word of God. Not because of the preacher, but because we do believe that God speaks through His Word and we do believe that we live by the Word of God. And so we want for folks to, to follow along with us in the Bible. Uh, Brother Langston, there's a hand here, young lady, uh, and others. We want for folks to follow along with us in the Bible because, uh, honestly, this is our life, and you need to check up on the preacher to make sure that what he's telling you is so. All right? So we're in Luke chapter 6. Uh, if you're using one of the Bibles that we are providing, uh, if somebody has it already, tell us what page that is. page 862. I find it on page 862. If you're new to your Bibles, when I say Luke chapter 6, the chapter number is the big number. And when I say like verse 12, the small number is the verse number. And so this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 49. As you turn there, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever heard someone say something like this? That Jesus was a great moral teacher. Have you ever heard a sentence like that, phrase like that? Many people believe that about Jesus, that he was a, a great moral teacher. But it's interesting, often when you hear people say that, you ever notice they don't go on to talk about his moral teaching? Usually it's in the context of saying that Jesus is actually less than what Christians think he is, the Son of God, God the Son. But we do kind of respect him as someone who was moral and good and, and taught good things. So at the same time that they are communicating some level of appreciation, they're also lowering, as it were, their estimation of who Jesus is. Christians have traditionally pushed back on that because we've rightly wanted people to understand that, yes, Jesus is a moral teacher, but he is much more than that. And so you think of uh, the, Oxford, um, the Oxford professor C.S. Lewis, his famous little um, framework that Jesus is either, what, liar, lunatic, or Lord. C.S. Lewis says, when you think about what Jesus taught, if he taught such things like he is the son of God and that we can only be saved through faith in him, and he knew that wasn't true, well, he's not a good moral teacher. He's a liar. Or he said maybe Jesus taught those things and he didn't know that they were not true uh, and he really believed them. In such case that Jesus is not a liar, he's a lunatic. He's lost his mind. See, as Lewis says, he's on the level of a man who thinks he's a poached egg. He said the liar or lunatic, or Jesus taught these things about himself, and they were true, and he was right, then he's Lord. He hasn't left us any middle ground. He hasn't left us the option of saying he's a good moral teacher without, in fact, embracing the morality that he taught. Have you thought about the morality of Jesus' teaching lately? It's, it's interesting to me that today's society is filled with people who think of themselves as good people. And it's good to think of ourselves as good people. It's good to try to be good people. Have you ever thought about today's morality? 
So I was meditating on our text. There, there are at least four things that I think are common in our society that, that kind of help us to define the, the moral leanings and the moral stance of society today. Some things we're told are good and bad, right and wrong, that define society's moral, morality. You ever notice that in the world and sometimes in the church, we, we're taught that poverty, for example, is sin. Or at least sin leads people to poverty. And riches, well, riches are good. That's the goal of life. And so we'll spend the next year, and we'll seem like 10,000 years, listening to politicians tell us about how they're going to expand the middle class and how they're going to do that without taxing the rich. What's the morality behind that promise? Isn't it that more is better? And that it's immoral? for the rich to be less rich? Or right, here's the second one. We're often told in the culture that love is the greatest virtue, right? And that love justifies all our actions. So we can marry whomever we want as long as we love them. Uh, any sort of moral standard about who we should marry and whether that's right, well, that gets kind of washed over because, well, we love them. Or how about this? You can't judge other people, ever, period. You can't know what's in their heart, and you can't judge them, and it's wrong to make any judgments about anybody on about almost anything. That's a moral position, isn't it? Well, I'll give you a fourth one. There are many ways to serve God, and all of them are equally good. That's a moral claim. It's an interesting list of moral claims. It's interesting because nearly everyone takes these things to be basically true, and nearly everyone who tells you that Jesus was only a good moral teacher has failed to actually consider what they believe in light of what Jesus teaches. And so this morning... We want to bring our beliefs beneath the light of Jesus' moral teaching. I suspect that we might find, we might find true something that the English journalist G.K. Chesterton once said. He says, is the, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. And when we're brought face to face to, with the morality of heaven, we see a purity there that far surpasses our ability to live up to it. That's why we don't look at it. That's why we attempt to make our own. When we consider the good moral teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, we find ourselves face to face with a way of being good that's unlike anything in the world because it's from another world. And when we see it face to face, we realize we need someone to save us, even from our own sense of morality. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 49. The Lord help us to see that Jesus is a good moral teacher. And that means more than many people think. Verse 12. In those days he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, 
for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck for eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. It's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood rose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them, it's like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Four things for us to consider this morning as we think about Jesus as a good moral teacher. Number one, verses 20 to 26. Number one, wealth without Jesus is doomed, while poverty with Jesus is blessed. Wealth without Jesus is doomed, while poverty with Jesus is blessed. Number two, verses 27 to 36. Love for our enemies is rewarded while loving only our friends is worthless. Love for our enemies is rewarded 
while loving only our friends is worthless. Number three, verses 37 to 45. You can judge a person's heart if you first judge your own. You can judge a person's heart if you first judge your own. Number four, there's only one correct way to serve God and live safely. All others end in ruin. There's only one correct way to serve God and live safely. All others end in ruin. Number one, wealth without Jesus is doomed, while poverty with Jesus is blessed. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 down to 19 really set the scene for us. In verses 12 to 16, the Lord holds an all-night prayer vigil. He prays all night, apparently seeking the Father, that he might know whom he should appoint among his disciples as his apostles. Now, that word apostle simply means sent one. It's a messenger. And so Jesus is looking for, among all of his disciples, 12 who would be the chief disciples, if you will, who would be his apostles, who would, he would send with his teaching, with his message, who would lead the early church. As we go through Luke's gospel, we'll learn more about these 12 whom he selected. But notice now, he's carving them out to teach them. And then we come down to um, verses verses 17 to 19. And Jesus comes down with his apostles and he stands in a level place. And verse 17 tells us a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all over Judea and Jerusalem, from all over the region, they come out to hear Jesus teach and to be healed. And sure enough, verse 18, he heals those who were afflicted by, by demons. Verse 18, Verse 19, power goes out from him, and, and many folks are healed. But it's not the miracle of healing that Luke wants to focus us on. It's the message. It's the teaching. So the whole rest of the chapter is given to us not to detail how the miracles work. The whole rest of the chapter is given to us to detail how Jesus' mind works, how he thinks specifically about issues of Morality. And the first thing we see there in those beatitudes and those woes in verses 20 to 26 is that wealth, however wealthy, apart from Christ, is actually doomed. Poverty with Christ is blessed. So you see there in verses uh, 20, verse 20, he's speaking to his disciples. Disciples is just another word for students. They are gathered together with their rabbi or their teacher to learn what he has to teach. And four times in verses 20, 21, and 22, we see that little word, blessed. It's a word that could be translated happy. The Lord is describing the joyful, happy, blessed life of the kingdom of God. And notice how he describes the happy. Verse 20, they are the poor. The hungry now, in verse 21. Those who weep now, in verse 21. And those who are hated, excluded, reviled, and spurned, verse 22. The poor, the hungry, the weeping, the hated. Jesus says, are the happy. But why? Would you notice the poor, theirs is the kingdom of God. Uh, his disciples may be poor now and with no earthly kingdom, but in following him, they are following him to an unshakable kingdom, a, a, an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom full of the riches of glory. The kingdoms of this earth will pass away, but not the everlasting kingdom of Christ. So blessed are the poor with Jesus. For theirs is the kingdom of God. And, and notice there, not only that, but our hunger now will be traded for, verse 21, complete satisfaction. And our weeping now will be traded for laughter. Now, when Matthew gives us his versions of these Beatitudes, he, he, he adds a, a sort of spiritual emphasis to it. So Matthew writes, blessed are the poor in spirit. He, he, said, he writes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst 
for righteousness. But Luke here leaves us with the more literal meaning. He leaves us here with the more physical meaning. And notice that word now. You see that? It's focusing us on the temporal. It's happening in time. What's momentary. Right now, those who follow Christ may find themselves for following Christ hungry, thirsty, weeping, experiencing brokenness and persecution, the hatred and the reviling and exclusion that Jesus goes on to mention. But they will be filled. They will be satisfied. They they will have all of their hungers, all of their desires, all of their longings satiated. And their weeping will be turned to laughter. The temporary now of weeping will become an internal joy of laughing for following Christ. And, and this is what he says here. And when people hate or exclude or revile and spurn the disciples, notice, on account of the Son of Man, on account of him, well, then our rejoicing should be greatest. Verse 23, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. I, I love the adjectives that Jesus uses when he speaks. He says, not simply that you will have a reward in heaven, but that your reward will be great. And we're left to ask ourselves, how does Jesus define greatness? How does a God who owns all things, the cattle on a thousand hills, whose riches are untold, how does he define great? For that will be our reward in heaven. For those who suffer persecution, it's because they believe in him. This is why poverty with Jesus is blessed. But wealth without Jesus is doomed. You notice there he moves to, the, to those woes. Uh, the woes in the Bible is a, a traditional form for prophets, usually in the Old Testament, when they came with some bad news to God's people. The people who want to know, do you come with weal, W-E-A-L, blessing? Or do you come with woe, judgment? Sometimes we, we have a way of trying to mockingly kick people out of their misery When they're complaining too much, we say what? Woe is me. Woe is me. We've forgotten what woe means. Woe is an agony, a sorrow, a pain that is unrelenting, that is not easily relieved. And here Jesus brings a woe from God. So the the agony, the sorrow, the pain that's not easily relieved comes at the hand of God's judgment. And four times, just as he said blessed, now he contrasts that with four woes. Notice there, woe is coming to the rich without Jesus, verse 24. It's coming to those who are full now, verse 25. To those who are laughing now, verse 25. And to those who are popular in the world's eyes, verse 26. They're those who appear to enjoy all that the world has to offer. Only there's no mention of the Lord in these verses. Verse 22, Jesus says, some disciples suffer in this world on account of the Son of Man. That's the key phrase in that first section there. But these folks described with the woes, there's there's no reference to their lives being oriented toward the Son of Man, oriented toward Jesus. They live it up without the Lord. And they receive a warm welcome in the world. But they are doomed. Notice, the rich have received their consolation. Have received, past tense, it's already come. Consolation means comfort. Their riches were their comfort. They've already gotten it. But in the world to come, there will be no comfort, only woe. They will outlive their money, and their money will outlive its usefulness. The fool now, as we say down south, live high off the hall. Some of y'all know what that means. 
They satisfy their desires now. They, they have refrigerators full and money to go out and eat now. But when judgment comes, they shall be hungry. Hell for them will be a gnawing in the gut that will not cease. It'll be a burning pain, a burning, unfulfilled desire that is never quenched. That worm will never die. They had it all in this life, and they will have nothing in the life to come because they did not have Christ. Those who laugh now will not laugh last. They shall mourn and weep. And the popular, those who knew what it meant to have all people speak well of them, will suffer woe too. Many people in Israel's history loved false teachers. They, they showered the false teachers with praise and rewards. But in the end, the people and the false prophets perished in God's judgment. The people loved hearing what their itching ears wanted to hear. And they loved inviting preachers and teachers who would tell them what they wanted to hear. The true prophets, if you look back at um, verse 23, well, their fathers rejected the true prophets. But the false prophets, verse 26, oh, they loved. They welcomed. They made popular. Now listen, beloved, popularity is sometimes evidence of God's judgment and discipline, not of his approval. A wealthy, well-liked person without Jesus is the most doomed person you will ever meet for as long as they're without Jesus. Everything about their life may look wonderful, but the great moral teacher says they have no reward. Their future is full of woe. The blessed or happy life is exactly the opposite of what most people think. There's greater, longer-lasting happiness with Jesus plus nothing than with everything minus Jesus. The happiness of everything minus Jesus is temporary. The joy of Jesus plus nothing is eternal. Christ would have us to understand this. Notice now, the great moral teacher curses what the world thinks is good and blesses what the world thinks is bad. Here's the question. Who do you think gets it right, Jesus or the world? Notice the second thing he teaches us. Or, or before we do that, let's say another thing. Notice how Jesus' mind works at this point. He seems to be envisioning a, a kind of trade-off, doesn't he? He seems to be thinking that on the one hand, you, you can choose him and the hardness of life that sometimes come with him and receive ultimately great reward. Or you can forget him and pursue your best life now full of pleasure and ultimately suffer woe. Uh, he's teaching us in spiritual terms something about delayed gratification and instant gratification. And instant gratification ends very often in judgment. As you give yourself to your earthly and carnal desires, you run, though you think you're having fun, straight toward the guillotine of God's judgment. But to deny yourself and to deny your flesh and to deny your desires and to postpone ultimate enjoyment until that day you see Christ face to face, well, then you are running headlong toward bliss. And he's making a choice clear does this over and over in the gospel. Follow me to a couple of other places. Keep your finger in Luke 6. Turn a couple pages over to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 25. Jesus asked this famous question. I, no doubt you've heard it. He says, for what does it profit a man to what? Gain the whole world and to lose or forfeit his soul. You see the mathematics there. Your one soul is infinitely more valuable than all the possessions of the entire world. You gain nothing if you get the whole world, but you lose your soul. Right. Turn over to Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Luke 12, 15, he's told this 
story, this parable about a man who's decided he's going to build bigger barns because he's going to make more money and save more stuff. The Lord tells him that that night his soul is going to be required of him. But notice what he said about the nature of life in chapter 12, verse 15. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Beloved, your life is not made up of many things. It's not the many things that you may own that make your life life and worth living. Abundant life comes not from things, but from Christ. Let me give you one more. He just teaches this all through the gospel. Luke 18, verse 25. Luke 18, verse 25. Notice what the Savior says. For is it easier, for it is easier, excuse me, for a camel, you know this one too, right, to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. What's Jesus teaching us here? That the way the world values money and things is ultimately soul destroyed. If you would live, forsake the world and its things and trust and follow Christ. He is the way to life. Over and over again, he teaches us the deception and the danger of riches. And he holds out this exchange and says, choose life. Seek life. Your life is found in him. And this is why moral lesson number one, wealth without Jesus is doomed. But poverty with Jesus is blessed. Lesson number two. Excuse me. Loving our enemies is rewarded while loving only our friends is worthless. This is what we see taught in verses 27 to 36. Again, our world loves to talk about love these days. Love is talked about so much, it's now a, a cheap word, and it's hard to even know real love when you find it, isn't it? So many things are, are called love, from I just love him to I love spaghetti. I nothing, no distinction in between, right? But here comes a great moral teacher. And if Jesus taught anything, he taught us the truth about love. He showed us love in his teaching, and he shows us love in his cross, doesn't he? He shows us the extent of love and the sacrifice of love by giving himself up for us to die in our place, to suffer the judgment we deserve because of our sins. That was love that drove him to the cross. And so we're not surprised that he comes to this theme of love, and he surprises us, though, with what he teaches in two ways. Number one, the first surprise is this, who we are to love, verse 27. But I say to you, who hear, who hear, love your enemies. Now, the most natural thing in the world, if we're telling the truth, is to hate your enemies. It almost seems as if enemies were made for hatred, you know? They, they harm us, and, and because they harm us, we at least harden our hearts toward them. At, 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 that's the least we do. At the most, if we could, we'd get them back, you know? We even got sayings for it, payback is this and that, and do unto others before they do unto you. <laughs> and we say that's only right. An eye for an eye, a two for a two. There's a kind of moral claim that's being made there about payback being the right thing to do in certain circumstances. But it's not the morality of heaven, beloved. Notice what the great moral teacher says. Love your enemies. Then he goes a step further. The Lord points out that your love for people, my love for people like me, like us, is in one sense worthless in God's sight. It's not ultimately worthless, but, but in the sense that, that it distinguishes us from those who don't know God, it's worthless. So look with me in verses 32 to 34. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. 
And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. You see what he's saying there? There's a kind of love that's completely natural to a fallen world. Even sinners do it. Sinners love their family. Sinners love their friends. Sinners are happy to lend to people from whom they know they can get their money back, right? Sinners are happy to give to people from whom they know are, are generally people that they're, they're in agreement with. There's nothing supernatural about that. That's the echo of our being made in God's image. And even fallen sinners love that way. Jesus says there's a higher level of love. It's a love shown not to those who favor us and are good to us. It's a love shown to people who are actively opposed to us, who despitefully use us and abuse us. Here's the thing. If we find that our love is limited to people who are basically good to us and like us, Jesus would have us believe that that's just self-love spread over a slightly wider area. That's just self-interest shared with other people who are going to benefit us. But the love of God is not self-interested. It's selfless. It's sacrificial. And that's the second thing that surprises us about this love. Notice the extent to which this love goes in verses 27 to 30. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Now notice, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And at this point, some people want to revisit the whole liar, lunatic, Lord thing, right? Because they're thinking, this is crazy. It's not natural. It's supernatural. It's divine. It's the way God's mind works. Love is a demanding thing. It's not something we do with words only, beloved. We are to love in word and in deed. Divine love returns good for evil. Notice, people hate us, we do them good. People curse us, we bless them. People abuse us, we pray for them. Not only that, divine love calls us to, to lay down our lives even more fully for those very people. They strike us on the cheek, we turn and give them the other cheek also. They, they take away our coats, we say, here, take the shirt off my back too. They beg from us, and we give to everyone who begs, not asking for anything in return. You know, Christian, when we walk down 8th Street or walk down Minnesota Avenue or walk down any street where we see people begging, we should reach the end of the street broke. That's what love looks like, Jesus says here. It's giving to anyone who asks. Even those enemies who take, giving more to them. It's selfless. It's sacrificial. It's divine. The world's morality says, love your friends and hate your enemies. But the great moral teacher says, love your enemies and give them even more. And why love this way? For two reasons. The first is there's something better. Did you notice in verses 35 and 36. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. There it is again. And you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So there is reward in the Christian life for living this selfless, sacrificial, divine kind of love. And there is a resemblance to our Heavenly Father in living this way. We are proving, as it were, our paternity through our generosity and we receiving from our Father a greater reward than anything that we give up. And there's a second reason we should love this way. It's earlier in verse 31. 
as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. The golden rule, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. This is what love calls us to do. And it is a tremendously transformative thing when it happens. And it might be that we're thinking, well, this, this is a little bit beyond me, Pastor T. I'm, I'm good with family and friends. I'm going to work on that loving your enemy thing. I'm going to put that off for a little bit. Don't do that. Think even now about those that you might regard as enemies. Those in the workplace who slant you, abuse you, mistreat you, cheat you at every deal. Those in the neighborhood who make life hard in the neighborhood may oppose you because of the name of Christ. I want to encourage us all to prayerfully, in the spirit, embrace this call to love them because it's this love that is transformative and redemptive. Let me give you two examples of that. One great and one greatest. A great example of this we celebrated just a couple of weeks ago, the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. If Dr. King preached one thing, it was love. The whole civil rights movement, people customarily forget if they ever learned, was actually a religious movement led primarily by Christian people who, who understood something of this ethic taught here in the Bible, to love those who mistreat you. And Dr. King sounded that, that, that trumpet over and over and over again. We're called to love, we're called to love, and we're called to turn the other cheek. If a man squirts ketchup or mustard on you in a lunch counter or calls out the dogs or turns on the fire hose, we're not taking up arms. We're not fighting back. We're not clashing with them as if we're trying to win Caesar's government. No, in love we are going to suffer, and in love we are going to redeem ourselves and even those who despitefully use us. And so now, today, in this country, we live in an integrated society. We live in a land where laws have been stricken down and where hearts have been changed because of the transformative power of love as Christ taught it. We cannot imagine how different our lives would be right now if those beloved people had not embraced the call to love to love those who mistreat you. Black, white, Asian, young, old, marching because of love. As a great example, there's an even greater example. There is one who had his coat taken and his tunic stripped, who was beaten and mocked and insulted and excluded and reviled. There is one who was taken down a long road to a hill and nailed to a cross. And even there, mocked again and reviled and cursed and, and spat upon. Who, when he was stricken, did not call down the legion of angels from heaven, but took it. And, and when his robes were taken, did not demand them back, but let them go and gave his life willingly on the cross for us, for our sin. It was God showing his love through the crucifixion of his son. And in that crucifixion, the son was punished for our sin. He suffered in our place. And three days later, he was raised from the grave for our justification, that we might be declared righteous before God through faith in him. All of the Christian message and all of the Christian gospel and all of Christian hope rest upon the shoulders of Christ's love. His love for us. And he first loved us. He loved us while we were enemies. He loved us while we were in sin. He loved us despite our treatment of him. And it's his love that has transformed us who believe. Never underestimate the redemptive power of love.
If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you might be underestimating how much God loves you. You might even be looking at your life and looking at the hard things in your life and convincing yourself that God does not love you. Nothing could be further from the truth. And the proof of his love is the crucifixion of his son. And you may have his love now and forever if you trust his son. Confess your sins to God. Turn away from your sin. Put your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And you will know forgiveness and you will know love through Christ the Son. We exist as a church to help people discover this love. If you want to know more about that, see us after the service. Talk with a Christian friend who brought you. They're probably going to ask you about this later. They're not trying to be pushy. They're not trying to be unkind. They actually want you to know the love of God in Christ Jesus. And anybody who wants you to find God's love is giving you an immense gift. Accept it. So, when we think about the great moral teacher, and think about what he taught, the first moral lesson that he gives us is that wealth without Jesus is doomed, but poverty with Jesus is blessed. The second moral lesson is love for our enemies is rewarded while loving only our friends is worthless. Here's a third lesson. You can judge a person's heart if you judge your own first. That's what we see in verses 37 to 45. The Lord in those verses lays down about four principles for righteous judgment. It isn't that all judging is wrong. In fact, you can't live in the world unless you make some distinctions, unless you make some judgments about what's good and what's right, what's healthy and what's unhealthy. And yet we can do that poorly or we can do that well. And Jesus gives us four principles in these verses that are kind of collected together here by Luke to help us think through moral judgments well. The first is this, be generous to others. In your judgments, have a posture and a tendency and an attitude of generosity toward others. That's what we see in verses 37 and 38. You see what the Lord says? Judge not, and you'll not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, real quick aside, this is free. Verse 38, notice the context. It's in the context of how we judge or forgive one another. It's not in the context of what you give in church. This text isn't here in Luke primarily about your offering. And if you give an offering church, God's going to double it and multiply it and press it down and give it back to you. That's not what the text is about. The text is about how we treat each other. If we are generous toward others, that will be given back to us in the generosity of others and the generosity of God. So, so that if we, if we are critical and condemning and judging of others, we can expect others to be critical and condemning and judging of us. If we're generally in a posture of forgiveness toward others and of kindness toward us, that we can expect in return. And so Jesus says, now, when you get started on making moral judgments, the first thing is get the right posture of heart. Not a critical spirit, but a generous spirit, a forgiving and kind and large heart toward others. And then he moves on to a second one. So the first principle is be generous to others. The second one is be careful who you follow. Be, be careful who you follow. Notice there in verses 39 and 40. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. That's a sobering thought. People become like their teachers. That's a good reason to leave this church. If you don't want to be like Pastor T and Pastor Matt and Pastor Jeremy, find some better teachers. We ain't mad. <laughs> but do know that, that whether you're talking in religious circles or business circles or friendship circles, the people who lead you, whom you look to, whom you follow, who you accept as teachers, they will all the while be pressing their character onto your life. This is what it means to follow someone. And, and so you want pastors who say, follow me as I follow Christ, right? You want pastors who you feel like, if I 
follow their examples, I am going to be following the example of Christ. And this is what Jesus says. Now listen, choose good teachers because if you follow a blind man, you'll walk right with him off the cliff. But if you follow a righteous man, you will walk right with him toward righteousness. And, and that, that following influences your judgment of others. You follow people who are hypercritical, who are always arguing about something, who are always condemning of others, sooner or later, that becomes part of your vocabulary, becomes part of your language, becomes part of how you treat others. But follow someone whom you've never heard say an unkind word about someone, who's always building other people up, who's always caring for other people and thinking the best. And even when they have some correction to give, it, it, it almost feels like they gave you candy because they wrap their hammers in pillows, right? And it's a blow, but it's soft. It's cushioned with grace and love. F follow that one, and, and it will be helping your judgment of the world and of others. Here's the third thing. Deal with your own stuff. So if we're going to judge others appropriately, if we're going to live a moral life, a discerning life in the world, the great moral teacher tells us that one of the things we have to do is to deal with our own stuff. And we see that in verses 41 and 42, that famous passage where Jesus says, look, before you go get the speck out of somebody else's eye, brother, get that log out your eye. That big old beam you got in your eye, you can't even see that brother's speck. Okay, we, we got an obvious problem. Let's, uh, one of my favorite commercials is this commercial with uh, a woman and her husband sitting on the couch. And the wife is saying to her husband, as wives sometimes do, you never listen to me. You, you, you don't understand me. You're, you're always trying to fix me. And you can tell the husband's trying to hold it together, and he's, he keeps trying to say something. She'd be like, no, no, no. See, this is an example. I try to tell you my heart and communicate myself to you, but you're always rushing off to some judgment. Now, you, in the camera, you haven't quite seen the wife's face from the front, and the man just kind of like, you know, kind of gives up. Then the camera zooms in on the wife. she got a big old nail in her forehead right here. And the brother like, but that nail, <laughs> let's get that nail out your head. Similarly, it is with our judging and caring for and correcting each other. Some obvious things that are obvious to other people, perhaps, it should be obvious to us. Logs in our own eyes, that if we're going to then sort of help other people with their respect and integrity, we got to deal with our own stuff first. That's why Jesus uses the word hypocrite there in that section. You hypocrite. It's hypocritical of us to be concerned about the sins and failures of others, and all the while unconcerned about the bigger defects in our own soul. So deal with your own stuff. Then, number four, judge a person's heart. When we've done those three things, then we are enabled by God's grace and spirit to morally deal with the world as it is, including the moral behavior and standing of others. It sounds crazy to say you can judge another person's heart because who can see into the heart? We, we don't have that knowledge. God, God has that knowledge. So how is it possible that people like you and I who can't know another person's heart in the kind of knowledge that God has can nonetheless say something about a person's heart. Consider what Jesus says in verses 43 to 45. Basically, all of us are like trees. We produce either good fruit or bad fruit. The fruit we produce actually comes from our hearts. The invisible things of the heart are revealed by our visible action and our audible words. We don't see into another's heart, but that doesn't mean we can't know what's there. The words and the actions that come to the surface reveal what's in the heart. In the end, this means we cannot do what people in our culture love doing. People love separating actions from their hearts. They, they love justifying wrong actions by saying, oh, but we have a good heart or he has a good heart. Jesus, the great moral teacher, says, listen, a tree bears fruit consistent with its nature. You don't get lush grapes and, and you don't get um, sweet nectarines from a bramble bush. You get thorns and briars from bramble to get that kind of fruit. You actually have to go to that kind of fruit tree. 
And so if the habit of a person's life is thorny, then the root of the person's heart is bramble. If the habit of a person's life produces fruit, pleasing and good, then the root of the person's life, their heart, is good. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our, our sin or our righteousness comes forth from our heart. And we can tell by watching the pattern of our lives. But here's the thing. We won't discern or judge the hearts of others with any kind of clarity or accuracy unless we are first generous in our posture toward them and we are following sound teachers ourselves so that we would know right from wrong by the Scripture and unless we are eager to deal with our own stuff first. See, those things happen. Don't worry about others. Let us be on our knees before God seeking his help with our own hearts. You see, it's a generous posture that keeps us from being mean and stingy in our judgments. It's following sound teaching that keeps us from confusing right and wrong. And it's dealing with our own sin that keeps us from hypocrisy and leads to integrity. And that kind of person judges righteous judgment. And that kind of person is the kind of person we want to be and the kinds of persons we want influencing us. Such people are gifts from God. We should pray for them in our churches. We should pray for such people in our government. We should pray for such people in our neighborhood that our country might be established in righteousness. And I'll be honest, this is what makes it hard for me to vote. Voting is a great privilege. It's a great right. I, I'm listening now to politicians asking for my vote. This is kind of like Am I going to vote for the, the socialists, which isn't a sin, but it's not where I am, the socialists on the left who would go even further left on moral issues toward immorality? Am I going to listen to the self-proclaimed conservatives, which isn't a sin, it's not where I am? Am I going to listen to them take us further right toward demonizing people and using coded race-baiting language and other kinds of things? I'm just, I'm, I'm like... I don't want to follow anybody off this cliff. I don't care if the cliff is marked Trump or Cruz or uh, Bernie or Hillary. God's people can't be blind followers. God's people have to be discerning and prayerful and careful. Even if we have to write in Matt Schmucker's name on the ballot. I'm launching that campaign right now. This is the, the committee for Matt for president. But you see the application. It's just, it's just all through life between who we're going to marry, which friends we're going to select, who we're going to vote for. We've got to be morally discerning people, which means we have to judge what we're seeing from people and know that it comes from their heart, even if they tell us otherwise. You can judge a man's heart if you judge your own. Fourth and finally, quickly, there's only one right way to serve God and live safely. All other ways lead to ruin. This is what the Lord teaches us when we come down to verses 46 to 49. Notice his final challenge in verse 46. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? What a striking question. This is Jesus' word to his new apostles and his disciples. It's his word to us. If we are disciples or students of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we must obey him. It's hypocritical to call ourselves Christians and not do what Jesus says. Worse than that, our disobedience, particularly our habitual pattern disobedience, proves that in that area we do not in fact love the Lord. So you might write these texts down. John chapter 14, verse 14. You can look at them later. Jesus says there, if you love me, that's the condition. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John chapter 14, verse 1. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. John chapter 14, verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. You see the connection there? 
John 15, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. John 15, verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Obedience to Jesus' teaching is an essential requirement of Christian discipleship. Our obedience does not earn God's forgiveness or acceptance. Let's be clear about that. I am not saying you obey your way to heaven. You will not. None of us are righteous enough to earn God's forgiveness. That is given to us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But if we have received that grace, it brings us into a new life of obedience to Jesus. So we're called to live out faithful obedience to our Lord. To call him Lord and do not do what he says is meaningless. I forget, early as a Christian, someone did this little example, this exercise with me. Maybe it's helpful for you. You probably have already heard it. They asked me to write two words down on an index card. To write no, N-O, and Lord, L-O-R-D. And they said to consider your life and look at those two words and decide which one you're going to mark out. Because if you call him Lord, you must put an X through no. You give up the right to ever say no to his commands. But if you're going to say no to his commands, you must put an X through Lord because you're proving that he is not ruling your life. And Jesus seems to have the same attitude. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? We are meant to follow him in obedience. And that is the only acceptable way to submit to him and to worship God is in this offering of obedience that is motivated by faith and sustained by grace and empowered by his spirit. Notice the parable of verses 47 to 49. It tells us there are two builders of a house, one who digs all the way down to the bedrock, lays his foundation, builds his home, another who just sort of puts his house right on top of the topsoil. And then a storm comes, and the storm beats on that first house, and and the house rooted down on the bedrock, built on a foundation, it stands and it weathers the storm. That's the man who builds his life on the Word of God. That second house built on the topsoil, when the rains come, it just washes it all away. It beats that house, and that house crashes. That's the man who tries to build his house on some other foundation than the Word of God. That house will end in ruin. And this is where Jesus is confronting our culture, isn't it? Because our culture tells us that it is immoral for us to force our morality on anyone else. Jesus seems to think it's the only way to be moral and to be safe. It's for his morality, his commands, his teaching to govern our lives completely. And we ask the question again, who's right? Jesus or the world? Wealth without Jesus is doomed while poverty with Jesus is blessed. Love for our enemies is rewarded Our loving only our friends is worthless. You can't judge a person's heart if you judge your own first. There's only one right way to live before God. All others lead to ruin. This is what the great moral teacher teaches. This is what he demands of the entire world. In the end, there are only two ways to live. We either obey the Lord and stand in the day of trouble and in the day of judgment, or we disobey the Lord and we fall in ruin because our house was built on nothing. It all rides on whether you believe that Jesus is a great moral teacher and whether you obey what he taught. What have you decided? Is Jesus a liar? Is he a lunatic or is he Lord? That decision impacts now and eternity. If he is telling the truth, and he is, then the only sane thing to do is accept him as Lord and follow him in the obedience that comes from faith. 
And that's the life that receives the great reward. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for Jesus, for sending your son. And we stagger at what he taught. For this did not come from man, that we should love our enemies, that we should rejoice when we are persecuted, that we should be generous of heart toward others that we should avoid the hypocrisy that men so commonly embrace, that we should obey his word and live. This comes from heaven. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear, by which we mean we pray that you would give us your spirit that we might obey. Not as people who are looking to earn your pleasure, for we cannot, but as people who know that Christ has already satisfied you in our place, both in his obedience and in his death, he has stood in for us, and now in great gladness, we look to live for him. So help us to be faithful, O Lord, we pray, to live in a manner that's pleasing to you, to live in a manner that transforms the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.